Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 440 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I know a lot of you are as excited as I am because John Mark Comer is back on the podcast. There's a backstory to this episode. I'll give it to you in a minute. We're also doing um, Ask Me Anything About Productivity. Cody, I got your question today. Young leader who's got a great question about productivity. We will handle that at the end of the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by World Vision. You can sign up for their free web series, Right Side Up Soul Care with Danielle Strickland at worldvision.org slash carry and by Remodel Health. Head on over to remodelhealth.com slash analysis to get your health benefits analysis and use code carry 50 that's C-A-R-E-Y 5-0, for 50% off. So, John Mark Comer, one of my favorite thought leaders, one of my favorite people these days and for a while. And, uh, you know, like a lot of podcasters, I got an advanced copy of his book, Live No Lies, took it with me on my summer vacation when I took July off, could not put it down, started texting him. and I'm like, hey, can we do a conversation? So uh, went a little long on this one and not too long. It could have been twice as long and it would have been just as good. And in this conversation, we are going to talk about John Mark's methodology. How does he see culture so clearly? We will also dissect some of the lies that a lot of people believe about freedom, sex, truth, and culture. And basically what he says, we'll do a biopsy on a lot of current beliefs. We'll talk about how and why the left and the right fail. And what is the way forward for the culture and for the church? This is a deep dive. I think you'll really enjoy it. If you like to think, if you like to analyze like I do, uh, regardless of your perspective, I think you will find life in this. And uh, his new book will be available at the end of this month. So make sure you check it out. It's called Live No Lies. We talk about alternative uh, titles as well. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. John Mark is the founding pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. He is the director and teacher of Practicing the Way and the best selling author of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and many other books. So Really excited to have John Mark here. By the way, if you haven't listened to his This Cultural Moment podcast with Mark Sayers, uh, this feels like a massive extension of that, and I think you'll really enjoy that. I know a lot of you are trying to make decisions right now for next year already, if you're thinking ahead. Remodel Health would love to help you with that. Do you know how your healthcare plan is serving your team, whether it's even serving your team? They've got a brand new health benefits analysis tool that they've developed, provides total visibility on what actually matters most to your employees. Sometimes you think, oh, I think they want this, and then you find out nobody actually uses it. Well, you can discover that, and you will then be able to compare what you're offering against newer, better, and cheaper plans. Yes, better and cheaper in the same sentence. So you're actually giving employees what they want, and you will save money. To date, listeners from this podcast have saved over $2.1 million. Remodel Health's exclusive health benefits analysis will provide you with custom, comprehensive evaluation of your organization. And to discover it, just head on over to remodelhealth.com slash analysis today. Use the code CARRY50 for 50% off. That's C-A-R-E-Y 5-0 for 50% off at remodelhealth.com forward slash analysis. And as we'll talk about at the end of the podcast, this has been a hard season for leaders. And World Vision 
has a program for you. It's absolutely free. It's a new web series called Right Side Up Soul Care. So in this series, Danielle Strickland and leaders in the global church share how they have learned to practice their faith and feed their soul through very difficult circumstances. And who knew we'd be in this deep water, right, for 18 months or longer? The church is a force for good, and World Vision's heart is for uh, the church to be healthy and mobilized, to be the church just not inside the four walls, but outside the four walls as well. So you can sign up today at worldvision.org forward slash carry. That's worldvision.org slash carry. Make sure you stay tuned to the very end too. I will tell you a little bit about what's coming up. It's a killer fall. And um, we've also got an opportunity to coach Cody, who's a young leader and wondering what are the differences between being overwhelmed in productivity in a small organization versus a large one. He says a lot of the stuff feels geared toward large organizations. What if you're leading something small? I'll talk about that and a lot more at the end of the show. In the meantime, a rich and riveting conversation with John Mark Comer. John Mark, welcome back, man. It's just so good to be with you. Happy to be along. I love your show. Love you. It's an honor to come along. Well, it's mutual. I'll tell you. Uh, We're going to talk all about your new book, Live No Lies. And uh, sometimes when I do interviews, we touch on the book. This one, I want to devour and encourage everyone to go and get it. It's the most, one of the most exciting books I've read in the last decade. And um, it's going to go in territory that may be new for some of our listeners, particularly from the business community. But we're trying to bring the best of the church to the business world and the best of the business world to the church often on this podcast. So just fasten your seatbelts because I think this is going to explain a lot. But you and I were talking just as we were getting ready to record. You have this Venn diagram in your mind when you write books Can you, can you or, or teach. Can you share that Venn diagram schematic that you have in your mind? Sure. Yeah. So, um, gosh. Backstory there, I was just saying this book and my previous book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, feel very different. If like if you're just a reader, you're probably like, what happened to the guy who was just saying, slow down and simplify your life? And now it's all about the devil and uh, culture. But actually, they go together at both a pastoral level and a personal level. And at a pastoral level, you know, my heart, every leader has their own kind of sense of emphasis, like what they bring to the table. And that's why there's no such thing as one-stop shopping or one-size-fits-all leadership. My heart, what I feel my call to is really discipleship and spiritual formation and the growth and the healing and the expansion of the soul into a person of agape as defined by Jesus. And so that's kind of, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm really not that interested in the running of a church or Sunday gatherings. I'm for these things. I'm not cynical about them. It's just not what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, I'm really interested in the growth of the soul. And so I think I came up in like a very uh, Bible, like literally that kind of West Coast evangelical Bible church movement of the 80s and 90s. My my dad was radically saved out of a rock band in 1970s California, out of Billy Graham crusade, your girlfriend invited him to it, like all the stereotypes, you know? Right. And ended up saved into one of the first mega churches in America, in the Bay Area where I grew up. It was, it was a great church, very kind of evangelical Bible church. And so in that kind of model of church, the working theory of change is basically teach the Bible in an inspiring way and then go do it. 
you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is maybe not the most sophisticated working theory of change. And that's a passion of mine is that all pastors and churches and Christians have a working theory of change, whether it's intentional or unintentional, whether it's conscious or subconscious. Hmm. And for most people, it's, it's subconscious, it's unintentional, and it's haphazard. And that's why they feel defeated and discouraged is because often that working theory is actually not based on scripture or science or anything in between. So anyway, I grew up in a church kind of culture where the solution to everything was more Bible study. And I love the Bible. So don't take that as a cynical comment about the Bible. But um, I just grew up teaching the Bible. And so I'm grateful for that. Like chapter by chapter, verse by verse, exegetical Bible teaching. That was like what I grew up and was raised into as a pastor and a leader. But I began to realize as a pastor that uh, that that's not enough. Knowing the right thing, as you know, the philosopher Jamie K. A. Smith would say, is not the same thing as as doing the right thing, which is still not the same as wanting to do the right thing. And so, you know, you have to habituate your body, your heart. So basically, then I started, I got all into spiritual formation the last decade of my life. And then I started kind of ending my sermons very differently with practice, with inner healing, with calls to community, life in the spirit, contemplative kind of stuff. Kind of how do you actually take a Bible study or an exegesis of a passage of scripture and attempt to habituate it into your body, actually get it into your muscle memory, like wire it into your neurobiology and like begin to live this stuff to practice what you preach, as Jesus said. But then I began to realize that, wait a minute, a lot of people are coming into my church, if not the majority of people, and again, we're in this very secular, very progressive city in Portland, with all sorts of secular assumptions about who God is, good, evil, what the good life is, what, what it means to be human, what it means to be sexual, what the purpose of life is, that are non-starters. It doesn't matter if I teach them this is what the Bible says and this is how to do it. They don't want to do it or they disagree or they have a whole other definition of good, evil, and what they're even aiming for. So now I preach off of basically a Venn diagram in my head. It's not like I put it up in front of the church of biblical theology, spiritual formation, cultural commentary. And I'm always trying to do three things in a sermon, teach the scripture, uh, give people practices to form their heart and body into Christ-like character, and cultural commentary. And a lot of that's just, it's pretty simple. It's like Philip Reef's whole thing. You know, that sociologist, he said the best way to critique secular culture is to biopsy it. I really <laughs> like that word picture. If you think of a biopsy, you just cut out a little piece and you hold it up under the light and put it under a microscope. So I do a lot of that in my preaching. It doesn't have to be angry. It doesn't have to be negative, um, though I'm sure I can be too negative at times. It doesn't have to be emotional. It can just be like, let's take, let's cut out postmodern gender theory. Let's talk about, you know, whether or not gender is between the ears and not the legs or whatever the saying hmm. would be in Portland. Let's take a saying like that out or you do you or speak your truth or whatever and let's biopsy it. Let's see where it comes from. Let's see who started that language. Let's see where the origins of it are. Let's see what the philosophical kind of underpinnings are behind it. And let's just put it under a little bit of a microscope, just in a calm, kind, interested, curious, almost journalistic kind of way. And what happens is all sorts of people began to realize, whoa, wait a minute, wait, that's underneath that? No, I don't actually believe that, or I don't want to believe that. Or It just starts to expose reality for what it actually is, you know? So a lot of this book is really kind of heavy on that cultural commentary piece, just trying to kind of 
biopsy the culture a little bit, hold it up to the light and just see what comes to the surface. I think that's what probably resonated most with me. So I'd say ruthless elimination of hurry. And we'll link back in the show notes. We did a great interview. You did a great interview on that. On this podcast and many other podcasts, it's a fantastic book. But that was a little bit more on spiritual formation, right? Whereas this one, I think what really made it come alive for me, it was electric to read it, was the cultural commentary. Uh, As I told you, I've been waiting for someone to write this book and hoping, praying that somebody would write this book and have someone at your stage of life, age 41, write this book. I thought it was just brilliant. And you really see our culture, which we struggle with every day, kind of exposed for what it is. And you're like, huh, yeah, that's not really compelling. And I don't believe that. And oh, that's where this goes. It's like you tug on all the threads and say, well, if that's true, then what about this? And what about this? And it's just, it's just brilliant. You and I were chatting as well about, um, you know, the need for the church. What I really appreciated, this is going to sound super nerdy, but the number of footnotes in this book, I don't know whether you tabulated them at the end, but it's, it's hefty, dude. Like there are dozens per chapter, probably hundreds, if not a thousand throughout the book. And what amazed me as somebody who spent a little bit of time in university is how wide the reading was. It's just huge. I mean, people I've never heard of from all over the place, left field, uh, right field, and um, your disciplines and rhythms. I'm curious as to your writing rhythm, because this isn't just, oh, I looked up five things and I Googled a few subjects and caught a couple of headlines and, you know, here's my research. Like, this is years of reading, I think. Am I wrong in that? Like, do you want to talk about that? How, like, this isn't, oh, I did some research for a book. This is, I've been thinking about this for a long time, reading widely, and here's the book. What are your personal disciplines in reading and study for the book and beyond the book, like just in life? Well, I mean, first off, disclaimer, the, what I love about writing, there are so many things. I'm really a writer before I'm a, a preacher or a pastor, or at least I don't know if I fancy myself that, but I prefer it. The, sure. the beauty of writing is you can sound way smarter than you really are, <laughs> you know, because you can spend six months or a year working on a book and you can give a rough draft to your friends. And I, you know, my sister who's smarter than I am, you know, does a heavy edit with me before I even turn it into my editor and she's wicked yeah. smart. And so you can, you can make yourself sound a lot smarter than you really are. So first off, disclaimer. Secondly, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I've done, I, I definitely have some disciplines, nothing earth shattering. The main discipline is preaching. So, hmm. you know, preaching. Um, so before I became a pastor, the one career I was really interested in and began, had begun pursuing was journalism. And I was never drawn to uh, like uh, beat journalism, you know, reporting Mm. what happened that day. But I love explanatory journalism. Like still to this day, I'm a sucker for like long form articles in the Atlantic or op-ed I was just going to say the Atlantic, right? The Atlantic is where you would have written. You know? Yeah. So I I think the way my brain is wired, um, I don't think I'm a super original thinker nor do I even want to be or aiming to be, I, I'm good, maybe similar to you, I want to simplify and synthesize. So how do I take this vast body of work that most people won't go out and read, and I, I can do some reading on paid time, how can I leverage that and attempt to synthesize, simplify it, put it into language that is accessible to people that are smart, but um, aren't necessarily educated down that rabbit hole or want to put the time into it. My basic theory on preaching is that most pastors underestimate their people's intelligence 
and overestimate their people's maturity. So they end up intellectually talking. Like I'm shocked how many pastors I meet who are much smarter in real life than they are in their preaching. And Hmm. I think it's because they've actually been taught, depending on what church tradition they come from, to dumb it down and assume that because they're people, I'm like, your people didn't go to seminary. They're probably as smart or smarter than you are. So assume intelligence. You know, our favorite writers are the ones that are just a little bit smarter than us, or they write just a little bit above where we are. They're probably a lot smarter than us, but (laughs) they write just a little bit above where we are. And it's perfect because your mind is engaged that way. It's not bored. So um, preaching is such a gift because similar to journalism, there is just this repeating every week. I mean, I have to come up with 4,000 words, basically. I mean, it's a 40-minute talk. I don't preach, you know, 52 weeks of the year, but I figured I write the equivalent of about four books a year in my sermon series, you know? So there's a discipline there that is exhausting and why I wrote a book on hurry, emotional health and Sabbath and why I'm about to go on a very long sabbatical. But it's such a good discipline, you know? So that's an amazing discipline. And then living in a secular part of the world is a good discipline too, because it just sharpens your mind. Like I've been thinking a lot about the gift that Tim Keller is as I'm, I'm no Tim Keller, nor do I ever think I will become that, but he's in an aspirational sense becoming a teacher like that in my 60s, 70s would be a dream. And I thought, why is it so rare that there are pastors and leaders of his age that have that kind of wisdom, maturity, Christ-like character, track record, legacy of faith and godliness, but yet, you know, I read one of his books recently, I think it was Making Sense of God, and he's describing like how identity works for Gen Z. I'm the dad of a 15-year-old Gen Z kid. Keller understands my son better than I do. I'm like, <laughs> he's, he was articulating the way that identity and social justice work and intersect with the gospel for Gen Z in ways that were foggy and unclear in my own mind. And I'm literally, I have one of these in my house. You know, one of these, like they're an animal. I have, I have three Gen Z kids in my house, you know? So, what, how, how did he stay so sharp? I mean, how, how is he such yeah. a gift? Whereas so many leaders at that age are great marriage, great legacy, love Jesus, culturally 20 years out of date, not even yeah. aware of what the most pressing questions are, much less coming up with good answers for them. How is Keller, you know, 20, 30 years older than me and doing much better than I am? And I think there's some, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think part of it, it was living in New York City for all of those mm. years so many years doing live Q&A after his sermon in Manhattan with secular people, wicked smart all around him. There's a sharpening influence there. And then other than those two kind of more obvious things, you know, it's not rocket science. I try to read an hour every morning before I turn on my phone. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you read daily? And I didn't want to put you on the spot because it sure is... It feels like there is way more on the cutting room floor than ever made it into a manuscript. And occasionally you listen to a message. Well, often you listen to a message and it's like, you squeezed everything you know about, knew about that subject into 35 minutes, right? Or you wrote everything you understand about something into that 800-word article. And it just felt like there was so much that didn't make it into the book, which is yeah. all Yeah. Oh, no, we on. cut 30,000 words off of that book from the <laughs> initial draft. There's all sorts of fascinating... The, the original one was much angrier and more controversial and interesting, but oh, thankfully it got matured at all through That's the great. editing. So no, you read no, an hour a day before you turn on your phone. And again, this is in Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. You don't touch your phone. I know when you and I are texting or whatever, or emailing, 
You don't check email very often. Your phone is on sabbatical until what, 9 a.m. or something like that? Um, yeah, it's different at different times in my life. Right now, it's 11 a.m. on most okay. days. I'm actually about to get a second phone, uh, not for like weird uh, celebrity reasons, but for just work reasons. I'm, I'm going to have a separate work phone from a home phone. And uh, it'll be still a cell phone because it doesn't make sense to get a landline, but it'll be like, it'll have office hours and um, I'll answer those text messages when I am at work that way. Right now, I mean, the phone just blurs those lines between home and work. You know, technology is great if you want to stay on top of things, but I think I'm trying to get to the bottom of things. And that's where text messaging and email and social media are just, they do nothing but sabotage the most important work that I have to do. That's worth the price of admission already. Okay, well, maybe we should uh, dive into the book a little bit at some point, because that's what, what I wanted to drill down on. You, your book addresses some felt needs, um, and then it goes in a really surprising direction. So I'm just going to read from some of the things you listed. Why is my mind, this is what a reader or somebody you're speaking to in the culture today would ask, why is my mind under such duress? Why do I feel afflicted by the ideologies of our time? Why is it so hard to find peace? Why can't we solve the world's deepest problems with all of our money, technology, and political prowess? How did you begin to identify that those are the problems that people are struggling with? You know, it's a common trope, right? The doctor who discovered some great medical breakthrough did so because his wife or her husband died of that same disease 10 years earlier or whatever, right? Uh And I think the the maxim there, not to moralize that, but is often our greatest contribution comes out of our deepest pain. Hmm. And um, I know that's for sure true in my own life. I love that line from David Brooks who says, I'm always trying to write myself into a better life. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, so again, you know, from uh, my previous book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, to this one, which if you pick them up and read them, will feel, feel very different at some level. At a pastoral level, there was a method to the madness. I want to form people into the image of Jesus or create pathways for people to say yes to the formation of Jesus. And I think uh, first step there is busy, hurry. Most people are just too busy to follow Jesus. So it's a non-starter. Unless people slow down, you can't even talk about discipleship. Second step was, all right, even if you slow down, you're just going to end up with more American project self, Hindu self-actualization, Christian Buddhism. Uh, Not all bad, but not discipleship to Jesus, right? So we have to identify the secular narratives on the left and the right and give people kind of a framework of discipleship. But at a personal level, I would would say it this way, Um, you know, I, the backstory to my previous book is like laughable in its stereotype of like burned out megachurch pastor having an early midlife crisis kind of thing. And so, you know, this massive turning point in my life about a decade ago now, where I kind of demoted myself from the leadership position I was in and radically kind of overhauled my life with all of these practices and rule of life and strict digital rule of life and reading in the morning and not touching my phone till 11 a.m. and Sabbath and long summer vacations and emotional health and therapy, all of this stuff. Mm. And here's the thing. On one hand, it radically altered my life for the better. Like I can't even fathom who I was 10 years ago to who I am now. 
On the other hand, shocker, it was not a silver bullet. It did not fix all of my problems. And I realized, a oh, yeah. a little bit of angst. There's a whole other layer. So if the first layer is designing a lifestyle of apprenticeship to Jesus, and that's a major theme in my last book that you know, the way of Jesus is exactly what it sounds like. It's a way of life. It's not just a set of ideas or Bible and theology or a list of do's and don'ts or an ethical kind of moral vision. It is those things. It's, it's, it's more, not less. It's also a lifestyle, right, of apprenticeship to Jesus. So kind of, I felt like layer one was, all right, let me, let me organize my lifestyle around following Jesus, um, what the ancients called a rule of life. Let me develop a rule of life. Let me slow down and simplify and move my body into a lifestyle where apprenticeship to Jesus is the organizing principle. But then I did that and I realized, oh shoot, I'm still me. So I'm in a way better situation, (laughs) but I got all this crap in my heart. I got this mind. I think of that line in Romans, you know, the mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind Mm -hmm. governed by the spirit is life and peace. So I've moved my body into this way better place, but my mind and my heart are still racked by kind of the conflicting ideologies of our time, by my own like inner angst and stuff, by, you know, um, Robert Mulholland. I don't know if you've ever read his book, Invitation to a Journey, but he has four layers, which is one of my favorite books of all time. (laughs) He has four layers of sin that we work through in our discipleship. Layer one is what the ancients called gross sins, not meaning gross like ew, but meaning like murder, you know, uh, violence, adultery. Layer two is uh, conscious sins, meaning sins that are socially acceptable, but not the way of Jesus. Hmm. So they would be gossip, materialism, white lies, bragging, arguably, depending on your moral vision, cussing or watching dirty movies on Netflix. Totally socially acceptable, but not the way of Jesus. We make them consciously. Third layer, so our discipleship to Jesus starts moving through these layers. Third layer is what he called unconscious sins, which are like sins of motivation, where you do the right thing for the wrong reason. You're pastoring a church, but really it's about overcoming a father womb or ego or money or power or control or whatever, where God starts terraforming like our inner motivation, what we, it's sins of, you know, not just commission, but omission, not just what we do, but what we don't do, that kind of stuff, right? Interpersonal kind of relational stuff. But then the fourth layer, what he would say, the deepest layer of sins hold and bondage over our soul is what he calls trust structures. And this is what Calvinists call idols, what Psychologists call our attachments, what Thomas Keating called our emotional programs for happiness. They are the things that we think we need to live a happy and peaceful life that don't go by the name of Jesus. And they actually sabotage our formation into people of love. And so my problem was all of those truck structures were still totally intact, even as I was Sabbathing and spending time in prayer in the morning and reading and good discipline with my phone, living in community and taking a long summer break, all good stuff. It, it's like it, it got me, you know, whatever percentage of the way down the road, but it did not get me to my destination. So I think the last five years or so have been, all right, like, what about the mind? What about the heart? Why is it that even when I have great life rhythms, my heart can just feel assaulted in a sense like and exhausted and weary even when I'm doing all the right things? 
um, is there something deeper? And I'll stop talking. But that's where this book came out of, that sense of why even when my body is doing all of the right things, is there still a sense of struggle in my mind and in my heart, a sense of opposition and even a sense of assault? And then that got me thinking, well, maybe it feels like a struggle and a war because it is. Hmm. And maybe my generation has lost sight because of our low comfort level of military metaphors and faith of what's all over the New Testament, that we're in a kind of war for the soul. And, and maybe the ancients in the Christian tradition have extraordinary wisdom to bear on this kind of a sense. It was, it was so good because, you know, we've talked about this before. I loved your This Cultural Moment podcast you did with Mark Sayers. And it feels like it's that on steroids and triple clicked, quadruple clicked, like way down into that. And the cultural expose, the cultural biopsy that you do in the book, I thought was so helpful. But you put it in the battle language of spiritual warfare. Which again, you know, there's a couple of listeners now going, oh, good, tell me more. And I would say 98% are going, uh, okay, I think this is where I stop listening, right? So uh, we got people who don't believe, people who are like, yeah, that was like first century stuff. But you do, I thought, a really helpful job of explaining what that is. Because the book is about the world, the flesh, and, and the devil, right? Which language... I remember people 30 years older than me using, but like nobody in my generation, let alone yours, uses it. What, what is underneath that? And can you, can you explain that in a way that might make sense? Because in the book, it makes incredible sense, but it's a, it's a leap to get there. That was the original title of the book, but my publisher, who's wonderful, basically said, nobody will want to read the book if you title it, The World, <laughs> the, the, flesh, world the, the Flesh, and the Devil. So then it was in the subtitle, and then it didn't even survive the subtitle. It was just, no. <laughs> Sorry, we'll put it in the table of contents. This is as best you're going to get. <laughs> that's not a slam on my publisher. That's a, that's a slam on me. Uh, yeah, you know, okay. So we all feel this sense of like inner tension. Why, why do we feel so torn between uh, God and the world, between, you know, New Testament language, the spirit and the flesh, between these different kind of desires in that war in our soul? Why Martin Luther King Jr. said that, inside every person, it's like a civil war is raging. And why do we, most of us feel they're like, yeah, I feel this, this conflict of desire. I feel this inner tension. I feel this sense of opposition when I try to follow Jesus or do the right thing or just become a person of love. I feel this, it's like I feel an oppositional force. You know, and we, we struggle to name that and articulate that and understand it in a, in a secular kind of frame that doesn't have any, any category for spiritual warfare, so to speak. But the ancients, I think, were, were much more erudite than we are today. And starting with the Desert Fathers and Mothers, who are heroes of mine, and we can come back and talk about them, they identified what they called three enemies of the soul, which were kind of like a counter-trinity, uh, you know, almost like an oppositional force to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they identified them, and there's different language used down through church history, but the most common is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And same as you, I vaguely remember like one really old hellfire and brimstone preacher <laughs> from our church using that language, but in a very unsophisticated way that was not compelling at that's all. That's your flesh, John Mark. That's your the flesh. Devil. That's the yeah. devil, you know? And and I think as a general rule, our generation has just like laughed at that and thrown it out like as, 
oh my goodness, what's like for the guy with the bullhorn on the side of the road? And I, I, so basically what I try to do in this book is take this very ancient paradigm that was used for arguably 1500 years of church history and then fell out of favor maybe a century, half a century ago, and basically update it for a secular and sophisticated person or cultural moment. So that's what I'm trying to do is take this ancient paradigm, translate it to our kind of Western secular, mostly progressive, but not entirely moment. Whether or not I do that successfully, I'm not sure, but that was, that was the goal of the book. And, and, and the section on the devil, which is about, it's almost half of the book, my basic case is that most of what we, when we hear the word spiritual warfare, which is not language used by Jesus or the New Testament writers, recent language, but when we hear that, when most people teach on it, I mean, half of what they say is just superstitious nonsense or, you know what I mean? Or yeah. weird magic incantations or a demon behind every bush, the devil gets blamed for everything, you know, it's ridiculous. And when we blame the, de the devil for silly things, it makes it easy to write him off for everything, you know? And so I just do a deep dive on Jesus teaching on the devil in John 8, where he says nothing about what I would expect, nothing about demonization, nothing about disease or death, nothing about natural disasters like a tsunami or hurricane, um, nothing about like a horrifying poltergeist or ghost or child's nightmare. Though I actually think there's biblical evidence for all of that stuff, but he doesn't say, he doesn't even mention it. He says, he calls the devil the father of lies and says, when he lies, he speaks his native language. And he refers back to the Genesis 3 story of the serpent in the garden with Eve as like the paradigmatic story behind all of the stories of temptation. And that's where Jesus goes. And so I guess a big part of the book is kind of a deep dive into a hypothesis that the devil's primary stratagem against us is deceptive ideas hmm. that play to disordered desires in our heart or what the New Testament calls the flesh that are then normalized in the kind of echo chamber of what the New Testament calls the world and what we would just call the arts or entertainment or culture or politics right. or economics, but the New Testament would call the world. And uh, how these three enemies of the devil, the flesh and the world, deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in our society of sin, how they work together to kind of sabotage our soul's growth into union with God and Christ-likeness. Can you give us one or two examples? Because it makes so much sense in the book. So that's an excellent theoretical framework. But like, give us an example of what, why would we resist? Because I love this. We had Craig Rochelle on. He talked about the battle in your mind. Jenny Allen has talked about that. You tackle it. Similar topic, but from a very different angle. All extremely helpful treatments of it. Uh, but give us an example, maybe in sexuality or even freedom. I loved your section on freedom um, of how, you know, Jesus might think about that, how the lies show up and how it's expressed in culture. Cause I found that so clarifying. Pick an example that, that you'd love to walk, walk us through. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are examples in the book from the culture wars, which who knows how much trouble that will get me in. And then there are the more pressing examples just out of our own life. The lies that we come to believe based off reading the news and or Twitter and the lies that we come to believe based off of a traumatic experience or pain or a family of origin or, you know, some kind of a moment, good or bad. And one of the cases in my book, not to say theory, but is that 
The deceptive ideas get as far as they do into our life, these lies in the language of Jesus, because they play to a deep, conflicted part of our heart. So like the devil's lies don't sound like, hey, Elvis is alive. He's still living in Mexico. Believe it. They don't sound like that. Like, who care? Why? That has no emotional bearing on my life. So right. it just, it doesn't matter. But let's, let's take, you know, a deeply Freudian kind of secular idea that I must be romantically and sexually satisfied to be a happy person, mm. which a lot of us wouldn't, if we were asked, do you believe that? We might say, no, I don't believe that. Almost all of us believe that because we're raised in a culture that deeply disciples us to believe that sexual and romantic fulfillment are mandatory to living a happy life. And without that, you will be miserable. Um, obviously, Jesus would totally disagree with that statement as a celibate mm -hmm. Jewish male. No, but that is a narrative, right? That marriage is oppressive or commitment is oppressive. Absolutely. And there's a left version of that that would talk about the patriarchy and da-da-da-da-da and, you know, gender roles. There's a right version that would talk about how you need to be married to be happy and da-da-da-da-da. But it's the same narrative. It's a personal fulfillment-based view of romance and sexuality. So when there's a thought that comes into my mind um, that I would argue is, is more than just a thought, I, I would argue with the ancients that it's quite possibly demonically animated or has some kind of a dark energy or like a malignant will behind it that sounds something like, hey, John Mark, I know your wife is great and I know you've been married for 20 years now, but you know, you were 21 when you got married, she was 19 you hadn't even gone to college yet. You didn't know who you were. You had no idea what your Myers-Briggs type was or Enneagram number was. You're from totally different families of origin, totally different cultures. You know what? Your personalities just aren't a great fit. And it's okay. You know, you would be happier if you were to get a divorce and marry someone else. There's somebody out there that would be a better fit for you and you'd just be a happier person. And, and that's good. And you want that for her and you want it for you and you want it for your... Now, that's just as much of a lie as some right-wing conspiracy theory or, right. you know, the royal people are lizard, the royal family are lizard people. <laughs> it's just as flagrant of a lie. And you could cite study after study from a secular, you know, clinical psychologist to expose the dark comedy of that lie. But that lie, unlike Elvis or the royal family are lizard people, it plays to something really deep in my heart some kind of deep pain, deep fixture where I'm torn, where there's a part of me that deeply wants to love and honor and stay faithful to my wife until I die. And another part of me that just wants to have sex with whoever I want and be romantically satisfied and do my own thing and not have the responsibility of marriage and family. And that's not the deepest desire of my heart, but it's there. <laughs> and I make the case in the book that our strongest desires are often not our deepest desires. And, uh, but our hearts are these kind of battleground of desire, you know, this war of loves, as David Bennett calls it. And so I guess, I guess that's an example. That's a great example. That kind of is bipartisan. That's not a left or a right example. That's just a human example. And most people can 100% identify with that, right? At one time or another, you're kind of like, ah, oh. so what is the strongest desire is not your deepest desire. So let's break that down a little bit. The strong desire is, okay, I deserve, I should have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. I should be free. I shouldn't be burdened down or this isn't working for me. What is the deepest desire under that? 
I mean, it would probably depend depend on your own wounding or your own family system, but what do you think some candidates for deepest desire would be? Well, honestly, I can't help but wonder if being made in the image of God, as all people are, if at some level all of us have the deepest desire, the same deepest desires. I mean, what do we mo- so what do we most desire? So you know, you're, you have these strong desires that I talk about in the, you know, the, which are flesh desires. So bodily, animal, primal, you know, neurobiological desires for sex, for domination, for food, for, you know, power, whatever it is. So in a moment of temptation, my strongest desire might be to lust or objectify a woman or, you know, do something stupid, break my marriage vows, but that is not my deepest desire. Right. My deepest desire, um, if, I, if I actually come to quiet outside of that moment when I'm my best self before God, well, I mean, in that example, my deepest desire is to become the kind of person who's actually free from the need to be romantically and sexually satisfied by some illusion or fantasy that isn't even real and is deeply content and grateful and happy and joyful in my marriage and my life before God. That's like, that's the real desire that's down there. And chasing another marriage is just going to make that problem worse, not better. It's not going to solve the problem. It will literally pour gas on the fire. So I think our deepest desires, regardless of religion or creed or class or gender or culture, I, I think our deepest desire is for God. It's what the ancients called union with God. I think it's to be set free from our fear and our ego and to become people of love. It's to become deeply good people. For all of the moral relativism of our day, it's uncanny. We actually have impeccably high moral standards for people in the world. Expect people to live like saints while, you know, while, you know, in a very secular worldview. And you go to any funeral, you're never going to hear anybody say, what I love about so-and-so was they just got a lot out of their Tinder subscription, you know, <laughs> or they knew how to just demolish opponents at work through white lies and manipulation, you know, or they just knew how to eat, drink, and be married. No, I mean, never. We, Even in our moment of moral relativism, all of us get that the meaning of life at some level is to become a good person to become a person who's pervaded by love. And I think all of us deeply desire that. We desire goodness. We desire a life of the New Testament's trifecta of love and joy and peace. So I think, you know, the spiritual formation always starts with rest and desire. So the starting place for all discipleship, all growth and transformation is slowing down to rest. You know, Genesis 1, creation starts with Sabbath. Then the week begins. Start from rest and then desire. We get in touch with the deepest subterranean level of desire in our heart, which is ultimately to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and just to do what he would do if he were us, to play our small part, to make our contribution in the world. And the more we can get in touch with those desires and then design a life around living in alignment with them, the more we find peace. It's that Stephen Covey line, you know, we achieve in our peace when our schedule is aligned with our values, but those values have to go all the way down to the deepest desires of our soul. Do you think, I don't know that you make this case in the book, but do you think 
that our culture is being fueled by the strongest desires right now, which don't seem to be tethered to much. They seem to change. Um, they can change in a heartbeat. They can change in a year. They can change in a decade. I think you do make the argument that 100 years ago, people looking at our moral culture today wouldn't even recognize that this is planet Earth. But would you, like, because there is there is a sense of, like, we talk about moral relativism, but there is a sense in which, if you look at the culture untethered from faith, the church, or Christianity, we believe one thing a decade ago, we believe something entirely different today, and we'll believe something different at 7.30 tonight, uh, depending on whichever way the crowdsourced morality happens to flow, left or right, progressive, or, you know, that that ideology. Do you think we're being ruled by just desire right now and freedom and this this shackles, this, this freedom from you write about in the book? Yeah, I mean, I got. I mean, feel free to disagree. I'm just trying to put my finger on it. No, no, no. I am. I mean, I emphatically agree. I don't want to sound alarmist. I, I don't think that secularism has any metaphysical ground to stand on. Just <laughs> meaning, you know, for example, the West is built around the idea of modern Western democracy is built around the idea of human rights. Mm -hmm. This is this is an inarguable statement I'm about to make. Human rights are a thoroughly Christian innovation, idea, and conviction that literally are contrary to secular Darwinian materialism, to evolutionary theory. Not just, it adds, they're, contra they're the opposite of what it says. Mm -hmm. So this is historically inarguable in my mind. And don't take my word for it. Take somebody like Tom Holland, secular historian, or Yuval Harari, uh, the yeah, leading Harari. atheist of our time. He calls human rights a Christian myth. And he's not saying that, Christian, that human rights are bad. He's saying they only make sense if you believe that human beings are made in the image, all human beings are made in the image of God, da 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 da, that Christ has set us free. If you believe that human beings are animals, just with a larger prefrontal cortex than the apes, and this is time and chance and bizarre coincidence and it's survival of the fittest and the propagation of the species, then the strong defending the weak literally makes no sense at all. Then Hitler is the logical outworking of Darwinian materialism. So when my secular friends advocate for human rights, which I love, and I link arms with, with mm -hmm. them on that, but they're doing so in spite of their worldview, not because of it. I, I just think, I think that's honest. And most secular people are okay to live with massive dissonance between their kind of metaphysical worldview and their moral vision of the universe. But that's a major problem because mm. let's take, you know, the, sex, the redefinition of sexuality right now so people outside the West are like angry. Like you look at some of the leading African leaders right now, Robert Cardinal Seurat from Guinea, or even Pope Francis has accused the West of what he calls ideological colonization. So there's rightfully in a, a country like yours or mine, a very high like sensitivity right now to imposing whiteness on the world, which I'm fully mm -hmm. in agreement with. But just, but ironically, imposing Westernness on the world, in particular, its view of sex and gender from a liberal perspective, is not only socially acceptable, it's actually thought of as virtuous. There's actually like a militant version of progressivism that sees it as like on a, a mission from God that they don't necessarily believe in to impose the progressive vision of sex, gender, gender roles, male-female stuff, on the developing world, on Africa, on people of color all around the world. And 
they're not having it, you know, because there's no metaphysical, like says who, you know, the, our African brothers and sisters say, who are you to tell us what is, should be legal or not legal or acceptable or not acceptable? And, you know, I mean, what happened with the Episcopal Church last year was just fascinating were the Africans, you know, I'm sorry, not the Episcopalians, was it the uh, the Methodists? Yeah, the, United the, Methodists. The, uh, yes, United Methodists, where the Africans stopped the almost entirely white progressives from redefining their denomination's sexual statement, and they got, the Africans all got accused of bigotry by the white progressives. I mean, it's just, we're living in up as, you know, <laughs> Orwell, Orwellian kind of times. So, all that to say, no, I'm I'm with you. The question becomes, all right, if we're just making up right and wrong based on mob mentality, what Instagram is saying and what yeah. we want, then why is why social justice? Why is slavery wrong? Why civil rights? Why all of this stuff? There's no metaphysical grounding for it. And so this is where I think that Christianity will still have an important role to play in whatever comes next culturally in the West. Because, you know, um, who was it Voltaire who said, if there wasn't a God, we'd have to invent one? Mm -hmm. Because you literally can't function as a society without an appeal to a higher moral authority and moral vision, transcendent kind of source of reason and purpose. And so that's where I think, I think something's coming next that will be interesting. It is interesting because what we just talked about for the last five minutes, what you just described, I think is sort of the child or grandchild of deconstructionism. You quote Foucault and Derrida in the book, you quote Nietzsche. And so you go back to 19th century philosophy, mid 20th century philosophy, you get deconstructionism, right? Which kind of looks through something and then nothing's there and truth is completely subjective and um, yeah, it isn't tethered. Power to oppress the weak, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, talk about how deconstructionism and even existentialism a little bit earlier has shaped the moral framework for the world we're living in. Because I'm sure most 21-year-olds who would have no idea who Foucault or Derrida were, or or Nietzsche was for that matter. Many would, but some wouldn't. What but but we're living that heritage. Can can you describe how we have that kind of we're living in a world that was mostly built by Freud, Freud and Foucault, in my personal mm. opinion, mm. at least in the progressive arm of culture. Yeah, I mean, okay, so the funny thing is deconstruction is like a buzzword right now for millennials, mostly, not entirely, who are deconstructing their faith, meaning they are either walking away from faith in general or going so progressive that they're no longer really in the territory of orthodox disciple of Jesus. But what people don't realize is that deconstruction is a technical term, as you're referring to. It is. It's, it's a philosophical school of thought. It's a philosophical school of thought. Uh, the, the phrase itself, as I understand it, was coined by Derrida, who worked in tandem with Michel Foucault. These are famous French postmodernists that kind of pick up intellectually where communism left off because Marxist, Marxism was basically intellectually discredited, mm -hmm. um, which is fascinating because it's made a massive comeback via the internet. In late, in a new version of it has made a massive comeback in progressive circles. But it was basically intellectually discredited. And so then Foucault, Derrida, and others kind of picked up and they agreed and they disagreed. They both critiqued Marxism and they continued its line of thought forward and they moved the kind of, you know, Marx was, was interested in classism and the struggles mm. between the rich and the poor. And that broke down. And so the, the postmodernists often brought it into other 
intersections, as we would say today, between gender, between sexuality, between religion, between race. But it's the same kind of basic power analysis. And so people don't realize that deconstructionism is a philosophical school of thought. It's a wider cultural movement started by white men that is in the air we breathe and everything from an Uber app or Airbnb, which are deconstructing the taxi industry or the hotel industry to postmodern gender theory, which is deconstructing the idea that gender and biological sex go together in any coherent or cohesive kind of way. It's all a part of this larger cultural movement. And the tragedy is people don't realize that in, you know, deconstruction is all about, it's obsessed with pointing out power dynamics, viewing every relational interaction through the lens of power and through the binary of oppressed or oppressor. And it's fascinated with this, it's obsessed with calling out the abuse of power in structures of society or leaders. This could be anything from pastors of churches or presidents or systemic forms of injustice like racism. It's obsessed with this. And much of it is actually good. I just recently read a, mm -hmm. a book on postmodernism uh, called Cynical Theories that was explaining Foucault and Derrida's impact on critical race theory and other things. And it was a fascinating book. And I found myself actually agreeing with Foucault and Derrida half of the time and thinking <laughs> what they were saying was demonically evil the other half of the time. But, you know, a lot of what they were critiquing was like, it's like legitimate critique. Yeah. Um, it's like there's some good stuff in there. The, the calling out of the abusing of power. What people don't realize is you're not trading the authority of the church or scripture, or Christian orthodoxy, or even your pastor for no authority. You're just trading that authority for a different authority, a French postmodernist and a larger cultural zeitgeist, and then your own self as the locus point of authority that you think is authentically who you are, but actually was handed to you by your professor or your high school teacher or your Twitter feed or Instagram or the New York Times or whatever your periodical of choice is. So there are larger cultural, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. We're late in the day. I just feel like I'm rambling. Yeah, yeah this is good. This is this is good though. We're, we, we're, we, we don't tightly edit on this show. We don't edit at all, which is good. This is a real conversation. Can you tightly edit and make me sound more thoughtful and concise and- <laughs> measured not, and not necessary then i act not. can you make me better this is why i prefer writing but, i okay, see i could just go. delete all of that and start over <laughs> mm, no this is this is good though because this is real life these these are these are the this is the conversation i long for the church to have this is the conversation i wish our generation of christians could have because i think if we did we'd be stronger as a church I think the world would sit up and pay attention. You know, Adam and Grant had Adam Grant and I had a great conversation, and you know, when he really saw even poke through the veil of the stereotype of what the church is, which is based, unfortunately, on a lot of reality. Um, you know, he, he was curious, and we've kept up up a little bit of a dialogue, which is great. I hope to have him back, but I think I think we have done ourselves in. And you said something there, which you you hint at in the book. I don't know whether you say it that way. But, you know, that whole you do you, like the individual is a locus for authority, right? And that operates on the left and on the right. It operates in progressive circles and in the far right, freedom from you can't tell me what to do. I am my own autonomy. I get to decide. You can't tax me. You can't control me. And then on the left, it's like, I will control you, but I am the locus of what is right. I am the locus of what is wrong. And I will tell you what's acceptable and I will tell you what's unacceptable. So we're in this tyranny of the individual. How does that play into the milieu of lies 
that the enemy is is sowing our way. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I explore in the book is the radical redefinition of freedom in the West mm. from uh, freedom as the classical understanding, which was freedom to pursue the good, to become a person of virtue, to become a person of love. That's both the classical Greek definition and the Christian definition yeah. to the modern definition, which is freedom to do whatever the hell you want. My word choice there is very deliberate not trying to be crass, trying to be theologically accurate. Um, yeah. The freedom to do whatever you want and not have anybody tell you differently. And you're 100% right. I'm, I'm fascinated by, in all of the cultural polarization, which I know is worse in my country than in yours, mm. but you have a lot of American listeners, I would Still imagine. Bad. It's mostly American listeners, but it's bad in Canada. It's a Western thing. We're ruining everything. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but and we're exporting our culture war to the world via the internet, which is really tragic. But I'm I'm always on the hunt, like, where do left and right agree? Like, where do they actually start with the same presupposition? Uh, one of the, I'm not actually that interested in politics. I'm more interested in how politics has become a religion um, because that's what I'm interested in. But my favorite, I think, book on politics I've ever read, or at least in many years, is Patrick Deneen's Why Liberalism Failed, which I actually saw, he's a conservative, I think he's a Catholic. It's not a Christian Ooh. book at all but he's a conservative constitutional law professor from Notre Dame. But I actually saw it on Obama's, President Obama's recommended reading list. And he basically said, I disagree with a bunch of this, but you need to read this book. It's worth hmm. hearing. And uh, he does just this great in-depth analysis of the left and the right and basically argues that both the left and the right, that all of America is built around what he calls the radical redefinition of freedom that he would argue goes back not to the 60s and Foucault and Derrida and Woodstock and the Beatles, but goes back to the founding fathers, to the constitution of our country, to 1776, to the enlightenment, to this radical redefinition of what freedom was from freedom as power and uh, to pursue what is good, to permission to do whatever you want to define the good for yourself. Hmm. And the kind of anarchy that that at some level creates and he basically argues that the right aims this redefinition of freedom at the market and the environment. So it's like, let us do whatever we want with the trees and with market capitalism. Keep your laws off of our, you know, government, tra our financial trading, off of our stocks. Keep your taxes out of our life. Don't tread on me. Let us do whatever we want with the earth, drive our stuff. The left aims it at gender, sexuality, traditional family norms, ethics, religion, the internal world of the cell. But it's the exact same mindset. It's let's throw off any form of external authority because that's what's blocking us from the good life. And let's redefine freedom as the ability to do whatever we want. The left just aims it at things like sexuality, gender, marriage, religion, the right aims it at things like the environment, the economy, politics, taxes. It's the same exact mindset. And ironically, this redefinition of freedom is actually, whatever you call it, what the New Testament calls slavery. Because what people don't realize is that human beings are not just, as we were often educated to believe, these rational objective selves that will just pick the good and do what is objectively right. We're emotionally easily manipulated uh, tribal kind of communal, relational, emotional, desire-based creatures who are easily deceived, easily manipulated, easily led astray by others or by our own flesh and our own brokenness and our own hurt. 
And this redefinition of freedom often leads people just to greater slavery, which we would call compulsion or addiction in our culture. Mm. And the epidemic of compulsion and addiction, both those that are socially acceptable and those that aren't, those that keep people from being able to hold down a job and have a normal life, and those that don't, um, is so widespread. And those things, I think, go together. Yeah, how would you define freedom then? Like, what is a what is a healthier definition of freedom? If that is not freedom, like, you know, this whole idea, because you make the point, right? We make our choices, then our choices choose us, or, um, and that's what happens, right? I can drink what I want, when I want, and then soon you don't have a choice anymore if you let that go too far. Um, and the same goes with sex, the same goes with food, the same goes with money, right? Anything, right? Down to that that thing. So how would you redefine freedom then? in a way that is biblically faithful and culturally helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think freedom is the capacity to both want and pursue the good as defined by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, which is where, you know, as an American, we would think of like 20th century communism is an obstacle to that definition of freedom because you literally can't pursue the good as defined by Jesus in some aspects. And uh, so it's the, it's the capacity to want what is good and then to actually do what is good. And that's where discipleship to Jesus comes in because you can want to do the right thing, but that's totally different than actually having the capacity to do the right thing. I can want to be a loving husband and father but then in real life, I can be critical, exacting, perfectionistic, angry, selfish, fear-based, domineering, in spite of my deepest desires. So I need more than just the desire to be a good father. I need actually the power to become a good father. And that's where discipleship to Jesus comes in. Through disciplines or practices, we can open ourselves up to a power that's beyond us, that of the Holy Spirit to actually grow in our freedom. And I think there's a quote in the book from Keller. I'm, I'm, there's multiple books in the quote, quotes <laughs> in the book from Keller, but there's one in there, I think, where he talks about how freedom isn't opposed to restriction or constriction, that actually freedom is about picking the right, the freedom to pick the right constraints that will then form and forge us into the people who are actually free. So marriage would be a great example of how we have the freedom to marry who we want, to make that covenant, but then that's a constraint and a massive constraint till death do us part in sickness or in health as somebody whose wife was chronically ill for 15 years, like it's a massive constraint, but that constraint is what actually sets us free from our slavery to our flesh, which is our body's desire to constantly get what we want and to treat other people as objects of our desire and our self-gratification rather than as objects of agape, of self-giving love toward, marriage becomes the constraint that over decades of fidelity sets us free. And in a sense, discipleship to Jesus is the constraint that over decades sets us free. We'll talk about the disciplines as we get to the end of the interview. So I just want to put a pin on it because it's really good to sort of live in this space, but you have some very specific practices to help you move from that area where you want to do what's good, but you don't do it to the point where, no, now I have some disciplines and habits in my life that are, are paving the way to actually realizing that intention and my desires no longer master me. So we'll, we'll get to that. 
Uh, I tried my best Russian voice on this chapter in my head while I was reading, so you can correct me and give me your best Russian voice, but desinformatia. I don't know. Is that right? You crushed it. So I just, I recorded the audiobook, and, you know, uh, you write all these words, them. you just write them, you know, <laughs> and then you get into a recording booth with two strangers and you're recording your book and you're like, I don't know how to pronounce half of these words. Desinformatia. I don't know. You definitely had to Google that one. And I think you just said it better than I did in the audiobook. So, oh, well, you got to get the audiobook now just to hear John Mark say that. So, disinformation, right? That, that is a term coined by the Russians, was it? Yeah. Yes, that's my understanding. The KGB. Mm-hmm. As the KGB a- created that. So, what is disinformation or desinformatia? Oh, okay, so it was a, a strategy developed by the KGB in the Cold War that is still ongoing to this day where basically the the strategy was to flood the West via media, entertainment, with disinformation. Lies, deceit, half-truths, red herrings, conspiracy theories, conflicting reports, to throw the West off its balance and to get it kind of in a self-suicide, kind of fighting itself, rather, and to blind it to Russia's activity in the East and just to get us kind of chasing our own tails. So there's an example in the book that sounds like it's out of a conspiracy theory website, but it's true of a street rally. And I think it was in Houston where there was a riot broke out between these two rival political groups. One was like the the right-wing group. I think it was called the Stop the Islamification of Texas. And the other was some kind of a Muslim, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but group. Polar opposite political extremes, right wing and a a Muslim rights group or whatever. And they both had these rallies against each other. And it it found out later and got violent. The whole thing was organized by Russian agents on Facebook who had started both of these groups. Were started by Russians, not Muslim people or right wing people who had organized these groups, developed followers, set these rallies, set them for the same time, the same place in purpose to create this uproar. And I just feel like that, uh, first off, that sounds crazy, but it's totally true. Oh, yeah. And it's I mean, such a good example. You know, This is like real life stuff. This is not theory stuff. Russia is mm-hmm. actually doing this to the United States of America right now as we speak. So I use that in the book as a model, as a word picture for spiritual warfare. Because one of my assertions is that when, again, spiritual warfare is not biblical language. When we hear that, the American imagination or, or modern imagination or Canadian imagination is so shaped by World War II and Lord of the Rings that when we hear spiritual warfare, we think of like two equal and opposite armies kind of meeting on the field of battle, whether it's the, the battle, you know, Britain in the air or a naval battle or a land-based battle, whether it's modern World War II or ancient, you know, Lord of the Rings, it's these two equal and opposite armies, or maybe one's the underdog, but there's still basically two armies kind of clashing on the field of battle. And that's how we think it's like Jesus against Satan and us against the world. But that is not remotely how the New Testament writers think about spiritual warfare. I mean, they are adamant that Jesus has already defeated the enemy on the Christ that on the cross, that Christ made a public spectacle of the powers, dismantling their power through his death on the cross. They think about it totally different. So I pick up Russia, disinformation, fake news, algorithms, conspiracy theories, dividing tribe against tribe and a kind of societal suicide as a much better word picture for how spiritual warfare works now than World War II. 
We we touched on it before and then we kind of moved on, but just for the remaining skeptics, and I've I've thought a lot about this myself. Why do you believe there's a force of evil? Why do you believe that there's a devil? I mean, you just wrote a book on this, and I'm sure there's a number of listeners who are like, okay, John Mark, a lot of this makes sense, but that part's a little bit crazy. What has convinced you that there is a personification of evil? I think for me, and I, I understand to the skeptic who thinks that sounds crazy, I totally understand. Mm. Um, no judgment. I think for me, the secular theories of evil that attempt to explain why the world is so messed up, why politics is so messed up, why we are so messed up, if we're honest, they the math does not add up. Hmm. You know, because the secular theories, and there are different theories of evil and how to fix evil, but generally they fall into, you know, this is not a hyper-intelligent, you know, yeah. Ivy League definition, but... Basically, it's a lack of education. It's a, and that's why people are superstitious and tribal and da-da-da. It's a lack of kind of equal opportunity and wealth redistribution. And so we need the government to fix things. It's a lack of the right political processes. Um, Maybe religion itself is part of the problem and it's superstitious and it divides people against each other and creates, you know, self-righteousness and uh, zeal, blah, 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 blah. The, or, or the lack of just technology, science, these theories of evil or even evolutionary psychology, which would be the closest thing that I would possibly buy that everything's just about survival. And that's why we hurt each other because we're just apes underneath everything. And it's all about just survival. That'd be the closest one I'd ever come to believing. But then you just have massive problems. It does not explain the human soul. It does not explain consciousness. It does not explain love. It does not explain why we're living in a massive culture that has this extraordinary value for love and human rights, even if it defines those a little bit wonky at times, that's completely metaphysically out of alignment with what it actually says it believes. Mm-hmm. Like there's just, there's too much mystery to the human soul. It's it's beauty, art, I mean, it's the C.S. Lewis thing. The problem, there's the problem of evil, but then there's the even greater problem of good. So mm. for me, I think the secular theories that attempt to explain away evil they just don't work because there's too many Harvey Weinsteins, too many Jeffrey Epsteins, too many fill in your blank of somebody that was well-educated, politically progressive, had all the money in the world, all the science, all the technology, and they were still an evil person and an evil force in the world. It just does not explain that. And so it gets me thinking, what if Jesus and the ancients, and not just the ancients, what if pretty much every single culture, Christian or not, around the world, except for majority white Western secular culture, what if they are actually right and we're the ones that are crazy? What if they're actually Hmm. more in tune with the reality of the universe and we're the ones that are blind? And what if science is the new superstition? Hmm. Do you talk about, um, and I, I want to say, I, I, I don't usually do this, but I Googled, do, do you know Stephen Pressfield? Like, do you know his work? Um, yeah, The War of Art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wrote a book a few years ago called Do the Work. I just Googled it quickly. Because when I read it, when it came out, it blew me away. And this is the description off Amazon. So just listen to this. I don't think he's a person of faith. If you are, Stephen, I apologize. But he, he writes it this way. There is an enemy. There is an intelligent, active, malign force working against us. Step one is to recognize this. The recognition alone is enormously powerful. It saved my life. It will save yours. And he is talking about the resistance artists, writers, creators feel 
to that, oh, my work's a pile of crap. I'm not going to do it. I don't want to write today. That resistance we have inside. I was reading it. I'm like, my goodness, Christians have talked about this for thousands of years, as have other cultures. But, you know, he just talks about it as an internal battle. And I I feel like we're in a moment where our culture is starting to struggle going exactly to your point. I don't know that these explanations about why you know, we have sexual predators. Every generation, if we were progressively getting better, we should be able to eradicate this. And we don't. We don't. We don't get rid of abuse. All the statistics say it's getting worse, and it's getting worse on elite progressive college campuses. Wow. It's like we're all on steroids right now, which is which is interesting. Okay, well, that, that was... Well, it's that, not interesting. That is exactly what I would expect. If you educate people from birth to believe there is no God... All morality is a social construct, often developed by elites in power to keep themselves in power and oppress other people. And you are an animal, aided by time and chance through survival of the fittest, propagation of the species by domination. And the meaning of life is to be happy and feel good in hedonistic moment. Just don't harm anybody else. Keep it consensual. If you tell people, that's the messaging they literally receive. There's no God. There's no transcendent morality. You are an animal. If that is the messaging that you hear from birth, then we should not be surprised when people act amorally and in self-interest and in violent ways. Wow. No, I'm, again, I'm not saying that all secular people are, you know, rapists. No, but that, Many of that's them are not wonderful people who are more moral than Christians. I'm just saying that's that that and the secular worldview go perfectly together together in my mind. Yeah, and if you follow a lot of what's happening in culture, that is not an unrealistic narrative. If you combine different strands of what is out there, that is sort of the default message. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, I want to talk. I want to see where I go yet. You you talk about uh, Dr. Larry Hurtado for the end of the book, who identified five marks for the early church. Can you walk us through these? It's very similar to what Keller says. It's very similar... Um, and I would love just to see it because, again, this pushes against progressive and right wing. It like kind of calls us all out. Yeah, no, Keller. I think Keller was the one I've read. Hurtado, Destroyer of the Gods, is his the book that's referring to, mm. and Keller did a great synopsis of it. But yeah, so Larry Hurtado is deceased now. Was a well, widely respected historian of early Christianity, and wrote a number of books that are just fascinating. He has one called Destroyer of the Gods that basically, which is a great title, um, that's from an insult from a Roman, I forget who it was, who basically was ranting against Christians and calling them the destroyers of the gods. You know, Christians were called atheists for centuries because they they didn't buy paganism. And they said, Zeus is either a figment of your imagination or he's just a demon. He's not Zeus. And there's one true creator, God, and his name is the Father, and he's come to us in the Son. And in 300 years, this violently persecuted, tiny little Jewish sect became the dominant force in the empire and eventually overcame paganism and the empire itself. And so he just tells that story. And his basic, let me, this is my, my interpretation of his book. He's basically saying that the church grew at such an extraordinary pace, not because it was relevant and relatable to the culture, but for the exact opposite reason. It was distinct from the culture and different than the culture. And that contrast was actually like the secret of its success. 
Otherwise, why would people join a movement that you knew was likely to get you killed or at least socially ostracized? It makes no logical sense unless if there was something so compelling about this Jesus movement that was so different and so distinct from the culture that you would be willing to give up at least your economic and social capital, if not your life itself. And Hurtado basically outlines five kind of basic features of Christian distinctiveness, many of which sound very common, don't sound radical to us today, specifically because Christianity has so permeated the ethos of the West. They are, if I can do this from memory, number one, they were, um, the early church was, had a very high value for kind of what we would call diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was a multi-ethnic and multi-racial expression of church, which was almost unheard of. Number two, they were um, spread across socioeconomic lines. So you had Roman elite intellectuals next to slaves in these little catacomb churches and house churches. And there literally was nothing like that in the ancient world. Number three, their uh, definition of sexuality was what we would consider Christian, was even more radical in the first century than it is in the 21st century of sex being between one man and one woman for life until death do us part. That was a, whether wherever you were in the Roman Empire, that was an absolutely radical, absurd idea. What we think of as a traditional idea was not traditional at the time, it was radical. Number four, they were active in their, um, in their fight against infanticide and abortion. Obviously abortion was medically more dangerous, so the exposure of babies was the common way that you would abort a child. You carry it to term. Study Sparta. They did that and yeah. just leave them out in the field, put them in a jar. Exactly. Put it out at the town dump. They'd either just be exposed and killed by the elements or they'd be picked up by slavers and raised to be slaves. And the Christians became like the first adoption agencies in the world and would go around and would adopt these babies and bring them in. And you were expected as a Christian to limit your sexuality to your sp spouse and then raise up children. And then finally, Christians were nonviolent. Um, for the first, you know, several centuries, at least until Augustine, they basically was not okay to be in the military and a follower of Jesus. They were both politically and personally non-retaliatory. They would not fight their enemies. They attempted to love them and would rather die than take a life. And what's interesting about those five distinctives, I think Keller's the one who points this out, the first two sound like, like if you map those five things onto American or North American politics, the first two sound liberal because they're talking about race and class. Mm. The second two sound conservative because they're talking about sexuality, gender, abortion. And the last one doesn't fit either side. Nonviolence <laughs> doesn't really go with Democrat or Republican, left or right, you know? And, um, and, but it's these, these five things that really don't exist in any other movement around. I mean, name a political party that is built around these five ideas yeah, of, of racial justice, socioeconomic equality, uh, sexual, what we call traditional Christian sex ethics, anti-abortion and nonviolent, non-militaristic. I mean, name, who else believes that except Christians and not even most Christians today, ancient Christians, you know? So this this is I'm so glad you 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 included that in the book and we just talked about it. But this goes back to okay, that's great, John Mark. But you're in Portland, and someone says, "So that's your truth. Great, that's what you want to do. Awesome, good for you. I have a different truth. I have a different understanding of reality. I have a different. How do you get through? Because working in a postmodern, just north of Toronto, we're you know we're we're very similar to the left coast of the U.S. We've been postmodern for a long time. 
and that truth is relative. And you see this now on the right too, more so than you did in the past. The right is becoming more relativistic because these are my facts. These are my theories. This is my truth. So it's funny because five years ago, I think you would have said that was a postmodern thing. Now it's a cultural thing. And everyone's like, well, that's good for you. You got those five things going, you know, live a nice life, have a good time married to your wife and take care of infants and, you know, be chaste and be inclusive and and don't kill anybody. That's great. But I got a different truth. And my truth is, what do we do with the subjective truth? Because you've worked with just countless, like thousands of young adults, you know, millennials, increasingly Gen Z, who just really feel like truth is relative and I got to find my truth and I am my truth. What do you do? It's like pilot. What is truth? What, how, what's, the, what's the answer to that? Well, I mean, first off, I don't actually think that people don't believe in truth. Okay. I think they say that, you know, I'm sure there are some like way down the rabbit hole postmodernist professors somewhere that may not. But I mean, if you ask most people, if you actually press them and start digging, most people believe that there is such a thing as truth and falsehood and even right or wrong. They may have great metaphysical grounding for it or not. They may have a coherent system. They may not. But I think if you press people, most they do. I don't know if this is if this is the right answer, Carrie. I just know that if there's anything I've learned as a pastor, it's that pastoring is not about coercion and control. It's about example and invitation. And every time, you know, I'm reading Dominion right now by Tom Holland, which is just riveting, tells church history and, you know, a subtitle is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Every time that the church attempted to use coercion in any political form to mandate obedience to Jesus, it was an utter disaster. (laughs) And this is really one of the great gifts of late modern democracy, is the gift that we don't have to persecute people who disagree with us. You know, we can, an atheist can live next to a Jew, can live next to a Quaker, can live next to a Calvinist, can live next to a you know, suburban megachurch pastor, like whatever, you know, we don't have to kill each other. And there's still tensions and problems, you know, but that's a, that's a real, that's a real gift in human history that comes arguably out of Christianity itself. But I just am not a believer in coercion or control. So um, I, I always have to be careful in the Portland culture where I live to not take on a survivalist spirituality hmm. where I just kind of hunker down and make the focus, you know, not letting the big bad world kind of corrupt me and I'm just going to take care of mine. And, you know, um, I think actually we're more dangerous than the culture is. And I think we need to actually have faith in that and not let the enemy fool us into thinking survival is the litmus test of success. We need to actually think like the early church. They didn't just think how oh, we're going to be beleaguered and just hold on through persecution and survive. They thought we're going to spread the gospel one meal at a time over bread and wine, even if it costs us our life. And we're going to see the world come to know that Jesus is Lord. And that's not a survivalist spirituality. That's a resurrection spirituality. And so I think we need, I, I can be prone to a survivalist spirituality, especially when I'm tired coming out of COVID and a lot yeah. of criticism, a lot of anger and ire. I'm in, again in Portland, a lot of controversy here. I have to be really careful to not 
lose hope. And, you know, hope as in the expectation of coming good based on the person and the promises of God. And I want to be a hopeful Christian and a hopeful pastor and a hopeful mind and a hopeful person. So I think um, part of what you're saying is going forward with a hopefulness and not just a survival mentality. But I really am not interested in trying to coerce or control people. I want to live in a way that begs the question. And then I want to invite people to join me in our community in that. I mean, Michael Green from Oxford, his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, basically sums up a couple hundred page academic study of early Christianity. It says, basically, this is how evangelism worked in the early church. The church was living a radically different and compelling life. Pagans were captivated and compelled by the way of life. And then Christians said, if you want to join us, you're welcome to. <laughs> that was basically how evangelism worked. Oh. It wasn't a digital marketing strategy for Jesus. It wasn't massive events. I mean, the whole thing was illegal and persecuted. It was just this beautifully compelling alternative way of life that hundreds of millions of people and now billions of people have found to be the truest way of life there is. Oh, that's beautiful. I want to get to a couple of practical strategies because you've got a monastic handbook that you show us how to write, etc. <laughs> how do you guard yourself against cynicism? It's been a battle in my life too. I'm trying to trying to die an optimist. Decades ahead, God willing, I want to be more hopeful, more alive, more joyful than I was at any point. But it's work, dude. How do you do it? It's work. I mean, I, I commiserate with you. Rest. When I'm tired, my cynicism goes through the roof. True. When I'm well-rested, I'm a more hopeful and buoyant person. Friends play that role in me. Like I, um, I think you have to be really careful with the kind of people that you let into your brain. And, um, you know, cynicism feeds on cynicism. So if your friends and your circle of people that you live with, work with, chat with are cynical people, that will just feed that outrage monster in you. Mm. And so I think I'm careful to make sure I get some time with friends that are not cynical, that are either full of hope, like, you know, um, full of faith where I lack faith, uh, some that aren't in their heads all of the time, thinking about Foucault and Derrida. They just are loving <laughs> Jesus. And they're not stupid or simple. They're just, that's not how they're wired. Yeah. So I think living in community, um, rather than finding an echo chamber of other cynical, quote, thoughtful people, is really important for me as well. And then honestly, reading church history, which at first can just increase your cynicism, <laughs> but then... You know, it can really enrich it. I'm, I'm reading um, that beautiful book right now, Water from a Deep Well, which is like through kind of 10 of the best contributions of different streams of the church to Christian spirituality. And it is just, I mean, it will just fuel your hope for the future hmm. of the world. Stuff like that, you know, just is just a gift. Um, so how do we resist this? You quote, your friend, John Tyson, our mutual friend, John Tyson, calls it a beautiful resistance, right? So you don't want to be those people hunkered down. There's eight of us left, you know, just make it to the end. You you want to see, and I mean, the world needs hope. I mean, oh my goodness, I think the world really needs love. The world needs hope. The world needs truth. 
how do you forge a beautiful resistance? How do you resist the pull of culture, but also become those authentic followers of Jesus in this culture? Yeah, I mean, I think, never speak for John because he's brilliant, but (laughs) I think what John and I would say to that, and I love his language of a beautiful resistance, and he's referring there to the church, is you form a community around obedience to Jesus as Lord, and you see what happens. And uh, I'm just really interested in whether it's a mega church or a house church, whether it's around a stage or a table or both, being with a group of people who are devoted to Jesus as Lord, for whom obedience to Jesus is the foundation of their life. None of us, you know, live into that entirely, but that is the deepest desire of our heart that we're attempting to live into. And I think the more that we can build a community around obedience to Jesus, the more beautiful and compelling that resistance will become, the more of a contrast community it will be. This is the irony of church strategies on both the left and the right that attempt to accommodate to the culture. They sign their own death wish, death warrant, because there's nothing that would make you join them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Why join them when I can go to brunch on Sunday morning or whatever? Why submit my sexuality or my money or whatever when I can just do whatever I want with my body and my money as long as it's legal? Um, there has to be something more beautiful about what I'm joining than what I'm leaving behind. And I think that that beauty comes from obedience. You dropped this really casually, but I wanted to pick it up. So... <laughs> You, you apparently uh, practice communal budgeting. So I think your line is, if you have over a, a, an expenditure of over $1,000, it goes to the group to approve a personal expenditure. I'm not talking church. This is like John Mark Comer's money that you've been entrusted with. It, talk about that practice, that discipline, and why you do it. There's not much to report. You know, we've been, there's been different iterations of it, but really trying to live in community. Uh, you know, not full-on communal housing, although if you were to come over to our house, there would be a lot of people here at different times of the week. Mm. Um, but uh, really trying to live in a, a thick webbing of community, not just church around a stage, but church around a table, and I, I love both. And part of living in community for me has to do with your finances. And uh, so, yeah, for many years, myself and at least one other guy in our community have done our budgets together um, uh, every year. I, we use the same little Excel spreadsheet and we do our budgets together. We talk about how much money we made that year, what we're being led into, what our budgets are. And we, you know, it's all, everything's voluntary, you know, but kind of speaking to each other's budgeting process or a couple, as couples and others have been involved in this. And then, yeah, for many years, we've had a rule where any purchase over $1,000 is not in the budget. We have to get approval, just meaning we have to talk to each other about it, which is really great because it forces you to articulate, I want to spend $1,000 on this new bright, shiny thing. (laughs) You have to think, wait a minute, do I actually, wait a minute. It forces you to articulate it. You can't hide it, you know, and sin thrives in hiding. I'm not saying it's sinful to buy something, but sometimes it is, you know? So yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of backstory. It is, it is what it sounds like. But it's rare. Do you, do you confess your sins to each other? Got to ask you, is that, is that a private discipline? Is it somewhat a public discipline? No, I don't think private confession is confession. Mm. 
Um, so a mentor of mine who's been deeply shaped by AA was talking about why the evangelical approach to the confession of sin, which is basically on Sunday morning in a crowd of people, before you take the bread and the juice, you say sorry to God in your mind, which is not bad, but why that does not have anywhere close to the liberating power as when you sit down in a church basement on a metal chair in an AA meeting and say, hi, my name is whatever, and last night I got drunk. Mm. Because the second one is a far closer to biblical confession and repentance than the first one. James says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. And that's the problem with the evangelical view of sin is it's so legal in its outlet. Mm. It views sin as like breaking a legal code. And I don't think that's wrong, but I do not think that's the dominant metaphor in the New Testament. The New Testament seems Jesus, you know, it's not the healthy that I've come to call, but the that are needed in physician, but the sick. He views sin as a sickness, a disease for the soul that is literally killing us. And we need to be healed. This is the Isaiah 53 view of the atonement. It's the Eastern Orthodox. It's the ancient, really for the first thousand years of the church. That was one of the major views of the atonement, the healing of the soul. And uh, so I think confession is like your weekly doctor's visit visit when you're a deeply sick person in need of healing, you know? It's like how God is coming to you and healing your soul and confession has to be to another person. So yeah, I mean, for the last couple of years, I don't don't have like some great formula that I can export to the world yet, but we've been trying to figure out how does confession become a regular rhythmic part of our life together in community? It's really interesting. You know, I was raised in the Reformed tradition and there's a fourfold pattern of worship that goes back for centuries and it's uh, approach, confession, word and sacrament, response. And I realized in evangelical ministry, and I've led an evangelical church, confession has disappeared. Like there's no more prayers of confession in so many churches. And other times you can argue, well, they were liturgical and they were formulaic. And yeah, but like no prayer of confession, like we're not even coming with clean hands. And then since the pandemic started, because we were in lockdown for a long time, uh, my best friend lives in Atlanta. And I said, hey, can we text each other every morning? So it's simple, simple. Well, now we're doing a Keller study, but anyway, uh, it's uh, best, worst, and pray. That's it. Best thing that happened yesterday, worst thing that happened, and pray. And it's moved into the territory of confession, which I have found very helpful. I've learned so much about him. He's learned so much about me. And uh, I do think there is something to confessing your sins to each other. That yes. It's very powerful because- It's interesting- yeah. No, go no, keep going. No, 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 no you go. go. I, was I was done. No, I was just gonna say the then you keep going. The mentor that I was referring to that was talking about AA versus yeah. you know, your experience in a reformed church growing up, every morning at I think six fifty AM AM, he calls his best friend oh, I know for a right. five to ten minute call to confess his sins. Wow. And they've been doing that for decades, right? Yeah, for forever. I can't remember how long. I got the chance to sit, my best friend and I got the chance to go up to visit him and his best friend. And the four of us sat um, and had an extraordinary time just learning from these two older men. How do you do friendship? How do you do male friendship over decades? 
at that level of confession, vulnerability, intimacy, where you actually know each other's stuff, you know? How does that, what, what, is, what does that look like, you know? Hmm. I'm glad you told that story. There's a lot of power there. So you also tell people how to create, and I want to get this right. I got to look at my notes. Um, uh, do, 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 do. A neo-monastic, oh, oh, wait, what is, what, is, what is the piece? There it is, your own monastic handbook for combating demons. Okay, that just sounds spectacular, but it's in the appendix to the book. Uh, talk, talk about that. Oh, I feel like that, oh gosh, that's a long conversation. I feel like that's a whole other book down the road someday. Okay. So, that, so that's a nod to a fourth century desert father that I am fascinated by. Evagrius Ponticus, also known as Evagrius the Solitary, who wrote a book uh, in the 350s sometime called Talking Back. The subtitle was A Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. So it's his <laughs> language, not mine. It's brilliant. It's, yeah. That book um, is built around what he calls the eight deadly thoughts that later were became or the seedbed for uh, the seven deadly sins of iniquity that are still around because two of his thoughts were really close. It was like pride and vainglory. So later thinkers were like, ah, that's, they're kind of the same, same thing. thing. Let's <laughs> collapse it down to seven. And it's built off of, and I go deep into this in this book, but of the ancient kind of desert father and mother's view of spiritual warfare as being a war in your mind to believe truth over lies. Mm -hmm. And so they took as their template for spiritual warfare, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, and Jesus' experience in the desert, where Satan comes to him, and they would say, all right, what happens in that moment? Satan doesn't come with a sword and an army of Roman legionnaires to murder Jesus' body. Satan comes, and it reads like a conversation where the devil speaks basically a lie into Jesus' mind. It's a deceptive temptation. It's subtle. It's not like go murder this person or have an affair or lie or cheat or steal. It's turn stones into bread. And it's this subtle kind of temptation. And they would say, what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. And they would say, okay, that's not a magic incantation. It's not a Bible study. What he's doing is thought redirection. He's refusing to enter into conversation with the devil. He's refusing to dialogue with the devil in his mind. He's refusing to let that internal video of the lie play in his imagination. It's thought redirection. He's instead turning his mind to think about the opposite, the, the truth to the devil's lies, God's truth from scripture to the devil's lies, which is fascinating because this is in perfect alignment with the cutting edge of modern neuroscience right now that would point out the obvious that we can't not think. And if you have a thought that's coming at you that's afflictive or toxic or negative or whatever, that telling yourself to stop thinking that thought doesn't work. So if I tell you, hey, stop thinking about purple elephants, what are you thinking about right now? Purple elephants, right stop it. Don't, no more purple elephants. Nope, stop thinking about purple elephants. I mean, you, you actually give that thought more power. Hebb's Law, neuroplasticity, you actually begin to wire your brain to think more about purple elephants, not less. Mm. So how do you break that pattern once it becomes a pattern? Well, you redirect your thoughts to something else. And for Jesus, that something else was the truth of Scripture. So Evagrius and the Desert Fathers and Mothers had this incredibly sophisticated demonology. I'm not even sure if they were right, and it sounds crazy, 
but I kind of think it was brilliant. They basically argued that the devil's primary, the primary version of spiritual warfare that we experience is demonic beings inserting thoughts into our consciousness. And they would say, which sounds crazy, but then think about it. If you suspend judgment for a minute, and they would say, have you ever had a thought that was negative or toxic, or you knew it was a lie, or you knew it was not helpful, whatever you want to call it, but it's like that thought wanted to be thought. It's like it had a will to it and like it had a power to it, almost like it had this dark animating energy, like it was after you haunting you and you didn't want to think it, much less believe it, much less live it, but yet it was haunting that you couldn't get it out of your head. They would say, and these are ancients, they would say that's because it is a demonically animated thought and that's the primary mean experience of spiritual warfare that we have. And they would say that you fight these demonically, and, and they have to be fought, you fight these demonically animated thoughts, not head on, but through thought redirection to truth and to scripture. So a monastic handbook for combating demons, which is a vagrious idea, I just do an updated kind of template in the back of the book, is basically where you spend some time, you can do this just through a simple journaling exercise, where you come to identify and you can do this through therapy, you can do this through conversations over coffee with your best friend. I do most of this in silence, solitude, and prayer, and journaling. You could do it, I, however, where you identify what are the lies that play in my mind? What are the deceptive ideas that these thoughts that feel to have like a, an evil will to them that just keep coming back? You write them out, identify them, see if you can do some internal work. What's the trust structure below them? What's the, what's the fear that's attached to them that's driving me or the desire that's disorder that's driving me? And then you, in prayer, just ask God to bring a corresponding scripture to mind and you write out the scripture. And then whenever that thought comes, you don't have to freak out or get anxious or all emotional. You just calmly and quietly change the channel in your mind and think about the truth. So a monastic handbook for combating demons is basically a discipleship strategy to curate your consciousness, your thought life, your mind stream to take on the mind of Christ, replacing one lie at a time with the truth of Scripture. So let's let's go back to what you said, you know, hey, we got married young. I should be able to have sex with whoever I feel like having sex with. Maybe I need some freedom in my life. I'm, you know, just hit 40. I've only got so much time left. How, how do you combat that lie with that? by thinking on truth. There's a private expression of that where I might have a thought like that as I'm driving home or lying in bed at night or after a fight with my spouse, which theoretically we have once a year, you know? Yes, yes. Um, and so I have several scriptures that specifically the Spirit has impressed upon my heart. One is, you know, Peter, husbands love your wives, dwell with them. Um, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. And I'll just quietly say that in my mind. And then the other is in community, you know, with close friends or my spiritual director or therapist, just vocalizing, hey, I've had this thought, I have this feeling, and letting them speak truth into my life, calmly, non judgmentally. And just, at, and then of course, the, you know, the daily reading of scripture, all that kind of stuff. Okay. But again, it's not rocket science. I think that's one of the reasons that there's so little talk about this stuff because there's not a lot of money to be made off of it. <laughs> you <laughs> right. know, well, you, like buy my 17 step program, right? Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, it's not, it's a life of discipleship. 
Um, but it doesn't cost anything. You don't need to be educated to a certain level. You don't need to have a certain amount of money or even time. You just need to have a desire to obey Jesus and to bring your mind in surrender to the reign of God. Hmm. Hmm. So you're talking about developing a rule of life and a neo-monastic church order with other churches around the world. You want to give us a sneak peek into what you're working on? Well, the the church order stuff's just a dream right now. I mean, I'm okay. actively dreaming about it with close friends. Um, you know, yeah, the basic take there is we talk about the Protestant Reformation. There's been lots of reformations of the church over 2,000 years. The church is always being corrupted by culture and then experiencing a moment of reform and renewal by loving uh, prophetic antagonists and leaders in the church that call her back to her true love, back to the way of Jesus, back to orthodoxy, back to holiness. And lots of reformations before and after the reformation. And most of them before the reformation did not split off from the church. As I understand it, you know, if you read Metaxas's biography on Luther, Luther never intended to split from the church. That wasn't mm-hmm. even in his paradigm. He was trying to reform the church and they kicked him out, you know? Um, so they, they were trying to protest against corruption in the church, not start a new arm of the church or whatever. But prior to Luther, most of the time, these reformations became church orders that we would know today the most famous ones, like the Jesuits or the Dominicans or the Franciscans or the Carmelites. And all of them basically started out as reform movements. They were all kind of calling a corrupted church back to a compromise with the political powers and cultural currents of the day, back to discipleship to Jesus, rich life and community, confession of sins, simplicity, forsaking money, sex, and power, you know? And there were these renewal movements. I dream of something like that, but for low church Protestants. Hmm. What would it look like to be not a Catholic and not a priest or a nun, but to be in almost like a religious order where you're basically just saying, I I want to go to the deep end of the pool and discipleship to Jesus. And I want to find some other people to do that with. And and what's they all were built around a rule of life. What's a, a rule of life, which is just what's a, a lifestyle that is conducive to deep healing and transformation and, and radical countercultural living in our day and age with an iPhone and secularism in a city or metropolitan area? How do we actually live today in such a way that deep healing change and, and radical countercultural lifestyle will become the norm, not the exception to the rule? So, um, yeah, we're dreaming about that. I don't know the current iteration. We put the uh, brakes on it a little bit. We want to authentically live it. Myself and a number of other leaders are all living by a rule of life right now, holding each other accountable to it. We make an annual commitment to it, meet together each year. We want to live it for a while before we try to export anything or put it up on a website or, you know, build a digital brand or something. And, um, and we also, if we do create anything, we want to be careful to create something that serves local churches, not competes with them. So we don't want to accidentally create like a spiritual elitism or something that would carve off people from mainstream churches. We wanted to hear like, if so-and-so pastor found out there were there's a little cell of six people in his church from that had joined this order, 
we want that pastor to think of that as a great news, you know? Mm. So I'm not sure how to do that. The current thought is maybe just starting a pastoral order, just an order for pastors that really want to robustly follow Jesus in this very secular kind of moment and lead churches to do the same. So I think that might be where we start in the next couple of years, but we'll see what happens. Love you to leave all the leaders listening with a challenge, a thought, an encouragement. What's, what's on your mind as we close? Oh man, just stay faithful, you know, which isn't just survival. Stay faithful to Jesus, stay faithful to orthodoxy, stay faithful to the church, stay stay faithful to your call in life, your vocation, and stay faithful to hope. And, you know, Willard used to say there is no problem for which the ultimate solution is not discipleship to Jesus. And when I first read that, I thought, that's not true. (laughs) And the more I think about it, the more I think, yeah, that's absolutely true. Wow. And that's it. I mean, what what is it at the end of the day? It's about apprenticing under Jesus with his community to become a person of love in God. Like that's what life is. And is there anything more beautiful or more compelling or more freeing or more peaceful than becoming a person of love in God? Like that that that's a that's worth giving a life to but it's a slow work in an age of internet and clicks and instant gratification and Visa and Amazon delivery, Prime, where this is the work of centuries or at least decades, not days or hours or minutes. So stay faithful. A long obedience in the same direction. I love that. (laughs) I really do. John Mark Comer, the book is called Live No Lies. That is the official title. Despite, uh, what is it, the world that of flesh? That is. It is not the Getting... world of flesh, the devil. Mm-hmm. Recognize and resist the three enemies who we've just named that sabotage your peace. It's a, it's a fantastic book. I think as much as highlighted in my copy as is not highlighted, and I highly recommend it. John Mark, your gift to me, to just so many other leaders, to the church, but also to the world. Thanks for being with us today. It's such an honor. Thank you for letting me ramble off and on, but grateful to be along. Really grateful to be in the conversation. Thank you. Well, I told you that could have been three or four hours. Man, I really enjoyed that book. It is targeted as a reread for me. I would encourage you to pick it up. And uh, you can get everything that we talked about in the show notes with lots of links and references, some highlights, some things you can share on social as well. Just head on over to kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 440. Next episode, we got a really big month on productivity coming up and stay tuned while I tackle Cody's question on ask me anything about productivity in just a second. But David Allen, who in many ways is kind of the godfather of modern productivity, he has taught leaders around the world so much through his getting things done methodology. He has, his book has been published in more than 30 languages. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Fast Company, Fortune, The Wall Street Journal, and more. Here's an excerpt from my conversation with the icon, David Allen. But you really are somebody who is a fan of emptying out that inbox on a regular basis. Can you talk about why that matters? Well, do you only take out part of your garbage? (laughs) Do do, do you thumb through your garbage and say, well, that's that's not so smelly. Let me leave that. (laughs) That's a great metaphor. The only empty part of your mailbox, your physical mailbox, like, oh, I'm just going to leave that in there because I don't think it's that that important. 
That's coming up uh, next time, just in a couple days on the podcast. Also coming up, Andy Stanley, going to have some fun with Andy. Uh, Aaron Meyer, who wrote a really fascinating book on Netflix. Chris McChesney from the 4DX. Juliet Funt, Amy Porterfield. Mike Todd is back. Max Lucado, and a whole lot more. And now it's time for Ask Me Anything About Productivity. I want to take your questions. And if you have one, you can leave it for me at kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast. Click on the button that says start recording. We'll take that for you. Just a reminder to check out our partners as well. World Vision has their Right Side Up Soul Care free web series with Danielle Strickland for you over at worldvision.org slash carry. Remodel Health would love to save you some money and do better benefits for your team. Go to remodelhealth.com slash analysis and use the code carry 50 for 50% off. That's C-A-R-E-Y 50 at remodelhealth.com forward slash analysis. Well, it's time for what I'm thinking about. Please leave me your questions. And here's one from Cody. Cody, uh, I think this is a great question. Here it is. Hi, Carrie. This is Cody Stewart. Um, I'm a young pastor of a church under 100, but actually is older than uh, 180. So uh, we are a smaller rural church. um, And I was curious what productivity looks like for the small guy, for the small church. Um, I know oftentimes productivity in that type of language can, can feel like it's geared towards the larger church. And so I'd love to hear what you have to say when speaking towards that of a smaller church. What, are, what, are, what is language? What is um, thought processes that can lead to healthy uh, conversations regarding productivity rather than leading towards uh, negativity as, as you're trying to gauge it upon something that just does not fit your model or your size? Love to hear your insights. Can't wait to see how God speaks through you in that. God bless. Love the podcast keep doing what you're doing. Cody, some beautiful country up in upstate New York and a shout out to everyone there. And yeah, I I love your question. And this applies to people, not just in a smaller church, but also leading anything that is smaller, which is actually the vast majority of not only churches, but businesses and organizations. So many solopreneurs listening. I think this will be helpful for you. And Cody, let me just say, when I was a young leader, that's how I started. I started at three very small churches and did the circuit on Sunday morning. And I'm going to argue that productivity is even harder when you're in a small organization than a large organization. Now, I lead larger things these days and have been through the sliding scale of small to large to very large. And uh, the advantage you get, I'm not saying it's not stressful to lead a large thing. It is, as anybody who's led something large knows. But here's the thing. When you have a larger organization, you have a team and your team can shield you from some of that and you can distribute the workload and you can set up systems. The challenge when you're a young leader, Cody, as you probably, you know, obviously picked up is that you kind of are the system, right? So I'm going to imagine that you're a solo leader, that you don't have any other paid staff, and that you're really starting out all by yourself. Now, that is exactly the situation I was in when I started out as a young leader at these small churches, is you don't have a support team, you don't have a staff. So what do you do? Well, in the principles I talk about in At Your Best, my brand new book, which by the way, releases a week from now, um, I lead you through thinking of your day in three zones, green zone, yellow zone, and red zone. Your green zone is three to five hours of productivity when your productivity is really at its peak. Now, in your case, that would be sermon writing. Uh, For business leaders, it could be, you know, what do you need to do that really moves the needle forward? That's what you should be doing when you are at your best. 
So the thing that will always suffer when you don't have a productivity system in a small organization is your sermon, which is due every Sunday, will not get written until Thursday night or Friday morning or Saturday or worst case. I've heard of some cases where it was Sunday morning. It's like I got up at three and wrote the message. Why? Because everything else took its place. And that's what happens when you don't have a productivity system. So think of your day in green, yellow, and red zones. Green zones, your energy is the highest. Red zone, you're tired. You're kind of dragging your knuckles. You're like, give me some caffeine to get through this hour or two. And then your yellow zone is everything in between. So I'm going to give you my hours. Uh, My green zone happens between about 7 and 11 a.m. every day. That's when I tend to be at my best. My red zone is 4 to 6. That's when I'm tired. Give me a nap. Um, You know, poke me with a stick to keep me awake. And everything in between during a workday is kind of a yellow zone. Why is that important? Well, your most important work is also the work that is not done. So ask yourself, what is the most important thing you can do? And for me, when I was leading doing exactly what you're doing, it was writing a really good message, getting some clarity on the future, and perhaps meeting with key leaders. Like who are your key people that are kind of running the programs, running the ministry that need your time and attention. Now, the challenge you're going to have, and this is true of everybody who leads a small thing, whether that's a small business, whether that's a store, whether that's a solopreneur, you know, you're you're somebody who's starting web design or something like that, or you're doing social media uh, for other people, and you're just inundated by inbound. And the challenge we have today is all of us have multiple inboxes, right? So you're accessible almost all the time. So the best productivity hack I have for you is to protect your green zone. When are you at your best? Do your most important work then. And what I would suggest is turning all notifications off. Because as you know, Cody, when you have your sermon done and you have all the big things done, you can kind of relax. And then you can get to all the other things. Now, to do that, I'll add this as well. You probably need to train your congregation. You probably need to set office hours. So when I was doing this in the 90s in very small churches, Uh, You know, you had a home phone and nobody could afford a cell phone. So they didn't even really exist. You just had a home phone and that was about it. And occasionally people called. There weren't a lot of interruptions. Today, there's a gazillion interruptions. And so you might just have to say, you know, to the people who would look for access to you during your green zone, hey, generally speaking, I'm going to be writing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in the mornings or, you know, the afternoon, whatever is best for you. I'm not available then. However, I could do, you know, an afternoon coffee or I could do lunch or we could meet Thursday night. I would encourage you not to burden yourself with too many night meetings. That was one of the components in my burnout. But by setting expectations that way, uh, I think that can help. The other thing I would say is choose a channel of communication for your church. Because it's small, it's not that hard to get the information out there to people. Say, hey, if you want to reach me, email me. Don't Facebook me. Don't drop something into my Instagram feed. Or, you know, I would be very careful about giving out your cell number um, because if your church grows, all of a sudden everybody's got your cell number and then you can't even get any peace at the beach when you're with your kids. I don't know that you're married, but you, you know what I mean, right? So I would pick a channel of communication and say, this is the easiest way to get a hold of me. And then maybe in your yellow zone every day, just kind of go through those messages and see what you need to respond to. The other thing I would say is once you hit 200, you cannot do it all. In fact, if you start to pass the 100 barrier, this is when you should start thinking about staffing. This is when you should start thinking about how you're going to scale pastoral care, whether that's a volunteer lay team. And the same for other entrepreneurs or business leaders is you've got to start thinking, okay, when do I bring on other staff? 
when do I start to have systems to control this? Because if you are the system, that is not scalable. It's okay if you operate something boutique or really small, but as soon as you start to get more people, and you know, as I talk about in my book, At Your Best, you know, the challenge for me was more people equaled more hours. And that was a formula that did not scale. I burned out. Uh, by the grace of God, I came back after burnout and tried to <laughs> figure out how to lead differently. And here we are all these years later. And what's interesting is I probably have more free time now that, you know, people access my content about one and a half million times a month. And I have a staff of eight. I have more time, free time now than I did when I was running a really small church. And I'm impacting literally, I don't know, <laughs> a lot more people, a lot more people. So how are you doing? That's the question. Now, I would love to take your question. I'd love for you to also uh, have a look at my brand new book. It's been number one for about a month now in its categories on Amazon. It's called At Your Best. It's about getting time, energy, and priorities working for you, not against you. Whether you lead a small organization, whether you're all solo, or whether you've got a large organization, it was written with you in mind. And you can check that out at atyourbesttoday.com. You can still get the masterclass for free, but only for a very limited time. But if you want to know whether you need this or not, I've got something really interesting, a burnout quiz that you can take for free. The last 18 months for leaders have been exhausting. Leading through constant change isn't easy. I did go through burnout about 15 years ago. So we put a free burnout assessment together. It's not scientific, but it is helpful. And we've run thousands of leaders through it. And the results are often surprising. A lot of people are burned out when they don't think they are. And that's not like a false alarm. It's just like, oh, you mean it could get better than this? Yes, it can get better than this. And that's what my book, At Your Best, is designed to help you do. So if you want to know whether you are burned out or you want to see if your team, how their health is, go to burnoutindicator.com, burnoutindicator.com. You'll get a detailed breakdown of your results and an interpretation guide delivered right to your inbox. So head on over to burnoutindicator.com if you want to check that out. And then if you want a solution to that, well, you can listen to these segments and pre-order at your best anywhere you get books at yourbesttoday.com also gets you a free masterclass. But if you want to see if you're burning out, burnoutindicator.com. Back with a fresh episode in a couple of days, the legendary David Allen. We will talk all about productivity then and uh, a whole lot more. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.